This podcast is brought to you by Trend. Trend is a micro-influencer marketing platform that helps connect brands with influencers. Learn more, join our network, or start an influencer campaign at trend.io. Welcome back to the DTC pod, everybody. I'm your host, Jay. And today we have a very special guest with us, Ian Leslie, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of Industry West, an e-commerce-focused furniture company with bold designs for modern living. We're going to be talking with Ian about Industry West e-commerce sales, their digital marketing success, their 10 over eight figures in e-commerce sales. So this is going to be a really great opportunity to kind of break down. Ian actually did a thread pretty recently on Twitter talking about his marketing and tech stack. So really excited to dive into everything over here. But before we get started, Ian, I'll pass the mic over to you if you want to give a quick little intro about yourself and tell us a little bit more about Industry West. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm CMO of Industry West. Been around for about 10 years. E-commerce, as you said, focused furniture company, both D2C and B2B. I always say the B2B side isn't really like wholesale, but more going directly to restaurant owners or cafe owners or whether internal or external procurement for, say, a Facebook or Airbnb or Google or any number of airports around the country. So we've really kind of do it all. And then obviously a lot of direct to consumer. We've been around, like I said, about 10 years. We don't do catalogs. We don't do conventions or cold calling or trade shows. So the website is the beginning and end of our lead gen and our catalog. And uh, we opened our first brick and mortar location in Soho in uh, New York City. It'll be two years actually next month. Very cool. That's awesome. So I know we have a lot of things on the the e-commerce side, but I'm actually curious about the B2B side. Uh, First, I know that was on my topic list, but was that something that already existed when Industry West started? Or was that kind of like a marketing play to increase the TAM, essentially the addressable market? No, actually, uh, vice versa. When they got started, it was really more so on the B2B or commercial or, or trade side, as we call it. Jordan, who's our founder and CEO, I mean, he really saw a need for trade customers who would go online and want to purchase 100, 200 bar stools. It really, back 10 years ago, it kind of was still going through a, hey, contact us for a quote sort of process and wasn't a true e-commerce play. And so he he really kind of stuck his foot in the ground or his stake in the ground in terms of being able to go directly to those trade designers and wholesale designer, or not wholesale, rather B2B or trade or whatever we want to call it. So, you know, interior designers who would come to us and say, hey, I'm, I'm spinning up a new burger joint in Pittsburgh and I need 75 bar stools. I need them in the next three weeks. And I just want to check out, like, do you have them? Are they commercially rated? And let's go, let's buy them. So, I mean, I think that was really where it started. And it's really only been since I started, I'd say five years ago, that we really kind of got more D2C focused and more residential consumer focused. And then that's heightened even more in the last 18 months with COVID. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's actually kind of the opposite. It was trade B2B first and then consumer side second. Very interesting. Yeah, we don't see very many uh, e-commerce or direct-to-consumer companies come on here and talk about their B2B side of the business. So that's super interesting, um, a very different play. So one last question on that, actually. Would you suggest a B2B play for other businesses? Obviously, you know, there's it's going to depend on whatever segment they're in, whether it's like food or beverage or fashion or something like that. It might not make sense for something like fashion, but for maybe food and beverage 
development could make sense. Is that a play that you think might be useful for e-commerce and direct-to-consumer companies to kind of explore to increase revenue? The B2B side? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, like, I'm not an expert in really true, kind of talking true B2B. I mean, I think, like, if you look at our sister site, Favor, which is in favor of.com, which is much more accessories, home decor, a much lower AOV. I mean, we've discussed, like, how can we get into the B2B side there in terms of, like, we have plates, we have dishes, we sell pillows, linens, dishes. How can we get into the hospitality, start outfitting hotels, restaurants, et cetera? Um, so, I mean, I think there's definitely a worthwhile play there. And I think B2B in general is still such a, a legacy vertical overall, I'd say. It's just like not e-commerce friendly. So I think the more you're able to provide D2C type tools on a B2B scale, uh, the better off and the a leg up you'll have. And I know there's a lot of different ways to go about that, depending upon like the e-com platform, whether it's Shopify or Magento. And Magento has like a lot of B2B tools that you can use. But I guess it really depends on the vertical and how willing that vertical is to operate e-commerce wise on, on a B2B scale, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I know we kind of pivoted to yeah. the B2B side. So let's bring it back to the e-commerce side for a second. The fun stuff, yeah. Which is really interesting. I find it super interesting. So I want to talk about, you know, you guys started in the B2B space, obviously, and entering the D2C space. I'm not sure when you made the pivot, but there are a lot of furniture companies out there nowadays selling direct-to-consumer. And so with so many competitors out there, what are the key things that you as a team try and hit on to differentiate yourself in the market in a space that seems to be getting more crowded by the day? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is obviously, I think the question I'm asked most frequently is what's our differentiator? And and it's tough because, I mean, we're not making sofas with recycled plastic bottles. You know, like we can't go out and say that or, or you know, we don't have that like really cool differentiator. I think where we differentiate is like, it's a lot of small things that add up to people wanting to be part of our brand. So, I mean, I think it's like, one, it's the quality of the product. Two, it's the quality of the product within the price point. So, I mean, I think like we've really found, and I kind of started to think about this a lot more recently, particularly in the last two years as we've opened in Soho, is people walking into our showroom and saying like, wow, this is amazing quality and particularly amazing quality at the price point. So, I mean, I think like we're still a quasi-aspirational brand, but we're not a restoration hardware so I think we've been able to find a really good niche in terms of quality and quality at price point. I think our customer experience, particularly with our sales and support team, is second to none. So we really are very hands-on, you know, from the order all the way to fulfillment to it arriving, you know, at your doorstep. And even though obviously we work with a lot of like freight and logistics partners and LTL partners and 3PL partners, but you know, if at any point that goes wrong, we're not passing you off to those partners, but we're really kind of holding your hand throughout that process on fulfillment and delivery. And then I think, you know, our founder and CEO, his ability and and our co-founder, their ability to curate the catalog. Like I hate the term secret sauce, but I mean, it's really a lot of what it is, is their ability to curate, to see what's out there, what's in Europe, what's emerging and bring it to the States first and us to be first to market on a lot of cool products. A recent example I give is like this Cane and rattan is trending. And we were really one of the first to kind of bring that back to market and bring the cane rattan trend back to market here in the States. 
And it's blown up for us. There have been times where we were late to market on things and we tried to add it and we just, you know, it didn't move. So, I mean, I think our ability to do that and curate our catalog really is what sets us apart. I think that's really it in a nutshell. Yeah, for sure. So for curating your catalog, how do you sort of think of that? Is that more of something that's driven directly by the founder? Is it, you know, in tandem with marketing? Is it in tandem with another department? How are you thinking about like catalog curation? Yeah, it's driven by the founder. um, But I'd say more than ever, it does happen hand in hand with sales and marketing and ops. So I mean, you know, is this a product we think is needed now? Is it one that more than ever, we're looking at it like, okay, well, how can we ship this product? What are their shipping costs? What's our margin on that? Like, how much are we going to lose due to shipping costs? And looking at a little bit more holistically and less or a bit more granular rather and not just like oh this is a nice new product i want to add it but really how it fits into the overall catalog how it fits into what customers are asking for um how it fits in tandem with existing products so if it's like i'm seeing outdoor chairs you know this table would be a really good complement to that but then also well this chair is going to cost us way too much to ship in ones And we just typically don't like to do shipments. You know, a lot of companies are like, you must buy minimum four. And that's just not something that I like. So it's like, okay, well, let's move past this product and move on to one that makes more sense in terms of shipping costs. So I mean, I think this is more than ever, it starts with our founder, our CEO, and what he likes. But more than ever, there is like an ongoing conversation. And we meet regularly as a product development team to say like, okay, this product makes sense. It doesn't make sense. What's the reason? You know, how can we tweak it in terms of shipping efficiency or cost efficiency or whatever? Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, talking about, you know, you mentioned the complementary product piece. Is that something you look at a little bit more like in terms of there's a lot of direct to consumer brands when they start out, they're looking to acquire as many customers as possible. And some people might not be thinking about the retention side of things as much. Is that something that you really sort of like emphasize like, hey, how do we get these people who have bought, you know, that outdoor chair, and now get them to pair it with that outdoor table? I don't look at it that much. I do look at it of I'm willing to take a loss on an outdoor chair to have them become a new customer. Because, you know, I do generally understand what our lifetime, you know, customer value is and know that like that second purchase online is exponentially higher AOV than the first purchase. So I do look at it as a customer acquisition, you know, willing to take a loss on that first customer acquisition on the product level. In terms of like upselling them the table or the matching, you know, credenza or whatever, I don't think that's how people buy furniture now. And you see this a lot with like personalization suites, like, and I think personalization has its place in furniture. But you'll see it a lot where they pitch you or a SaaS will be like, we put this hardware company, put our personalization suite on their their website. And when someone bought Craftsman, the second time they came in, we only showed them Craftsman because, you know, that's the product they like or that's the brand they want to buy. Like it doesn't work with like that with furniture, like, you know, like, oh, they bought a bed. So now next time they come in, I'm only going to show them beds or I'm only going to show them the matching nightstands. People are, are, are definitely creating spaces that are more unique and aren't just wanting the cane chair to match the cane bed, match the cane end table. So, but there are places for personalization and there are places for that cross sell. So back to your original question, I mean, I don't look at that as, oh, come back and buy the table. I, but I do say like, okay, if we have to take a loss on this chair, I'm generally okay with that because 
I do see like our return customers are, are critically important to us. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, one of the ways that I know you mentioned this on your Twitter thread is that a lot of your business comes through either emails and customer calls. So I'd be curious to to kind of learn a little bit of A, how you kind of manage those and B, what is kind of happening? Like, is it the vertical you're in that's playing into that? And I would just love to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. So, I mean, I think furniture in general is particularly on the trade side is an extremely old school vertical, legacy vertical. So we will see a lot. And I I joke about this. We see a lot of people will take a like trade customers will create a trade account, get their trade discount, go all the way to their cart where the trade discount is applied and then screenshot that and send it to a sales rep and ask for like a formal quote so that then they can bring that to their client. And there's really like, there's going to be a segment of furniture that I think is always going to be like that. Like a segment of furniture sales is always going to be like that. Um, But I do think, and as we've seen, there are tools we can build and and things we can do to the website to increase our AOV and and to make it more appetizing for the trade customer to purchase online. And we've seen that. I mean, like we've seen our overall share of cash and invoiced for web has grown exponentially against overall revenue. And then our AOV has grown. Not a day goes by where I don't see some sort of trade, commercial, whatever you want to call it, order of, you know, a couple dozen stools or chairs occur on our website. You know, so whereas that used to never happen, it it happens regularly now where trade orders are occurring on our website and someone is willing to buy 40 bar stools for their restaurant or whatever it may be. But I do think, like I said, I, I think there's always going to be that segment of whether it's an affirmation issue, whether it's a just again, like they don't have the credit card to make the sale and they want to just get it done and bring it to their client and have their client ultimately make the sale. There's just always going to be that or, you know, there are often projects that are bid, you know, bid among several designers. And so they need to get a quote from us. So, I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of components where I don't think that's going to be something that entirely changes, but it's definitely something that's changed to an extent. For sure. And so, you know, you mentioned, you know, the B2B side of your business. Uh, and I'd be curious, how do you guys think about, you know, the B2C versus the B2B? Like, are you looking to try and grow to be 50% both ways? Like, are you looking for the e-commerce business to really take over? And like, even connecting back to your marketing, like, how does that play into your marketing dollars? Are you typically spending more on trying to go after those, you know, consumers or businesses? Yeah, our marketing dollars are really segmented. I find that the trade is, again, it's like we're not traditional B2B, so it's a little bit different. But I mean, I find generally interior designers, whether they're buying for a house in Nantucket, whether they're buying for a new office building going up, a new hotel, or whether they're buying, again, internal procurement for Facebook or a food court at Yankee Stadium, which we've done, or, you know, a food court at a stadium in Miami. Like, I feel like they're the same customer as the customer who's buying for their living room. So, like, they go through Pinterest, they go through Instagram, they scroll, they scroll, they scroll, they Google search a little bit. But then once after they've searched, like, you know, a lot of retargeting, a lot of just lookalike audience sort of stuff and on our side, and if they see a product they like, it doesn't matter if it's us or another e-commerce furniture company, they're going to go to the website. And if they feel like they have enough information that 
makes them feel comfortable that it can be used in a commercial setting, then they're going to make the purchase. If they don't, they're like I said, they're going to reach out and say like, hey, I saw this chair on Instagram, on an Instagram ad. I love it. Like I need 50 of them for my restaurant. What's like the weight limit? And is it commercially rated? And do you have like fire certification? And like, if we answer that question online, then they'll probably check out. If they need to go through a rep, then the rep will handle the order for them. So I feel like that customer is buying the same as as someone buying for their living room. And I think what makes us unique is that like, we're not traditional office furniture, right? Like if we wanted to be used in a business setting, it's for someone who wants to experience a business setting that's very similar to their home setting. That's why we really don't have to segment like office desk chairs because like our chairs are like basically what people may be using for desk chairs, they're also using for dining chairs. Or they're using, you know, at their, you know, bar stools can be used at, you know, a barbecue restaurant or it can be used in the cafeteria at SeatGeek, which they currently are, SeatGeek's headquarters in Manhattan. So, I mean, I think, like, because our items are so, like, multi-use like that, we don't really necessarily segment our spend because I think our customer ultimately is, is the same customer. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there has been a big trend even on the B2B side of thinking, you know, the person is the one who's buying at the end of the day. So that totally makes sense in terms of how you run your marketing strategy there. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D slash podcast and look for the Slack community link to claim your invite. We hope to see you on there. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, key metrics that you look at. Obviously, managing an eight-figure e-commerce store, I'm sure there's a lot of data points that you get in terms of, you know, the tech stack you've implemented and all of that stuff. Yeah. So what are the metrics that you really look at and pay attention to and, and use as kind of like your goals to hit? Yeah, it's like I mentioned in my Twitter thread. I mean, we have so much data. Like, So we have, I mean, utilizing NetSuite, utilizing Salesforce, utilizing Magento, Google Analytics, and even like some really good data out of Nosto. Magento has business intelligence now, which is formerly RJ Metrics. Like there's no lack of data. And then, you know, what our digital media team is providing via, you know, what they're seeing in the ad campaigns. I don't think there's any lack of data. I think like what's what's tough for us is to really extrapolate what's the important data and what's the actionable, you know, data points. I mean, for me on a daily basis, my KPIs are like I'm, I'm looking at ROAS. I'm looking at ROAS against overall cash in and dividing that by both what comes in via e-commerce or versus what comes in via reps. I'm looking at daily sales orders for us. So um, again, you know, we're such a different I say such a different company. We're not that different, but we're a different animal to the extent of like we're doing 50% of our business via reps, phones, emails that we'll have someone email in and say like, hey, I need an estimate for $40,000 with the furniture. We give them the estimate and they're like, great, let's put it in a sales order and I'll send you the check. So now like we have this sales order, but we don't have the cash yet and we haven't fulfilled yet. So we haven't invoiced and that's not hitting the budget yet. So it's like this 40 grand in revenue that the rep's done the work on, but it hasn't really hit the books yet. So, but I do need to account for and against my ad spend. So like that was, you know, ads that turned into dollars. So I'm looking at that. I'm, so I'm looking at 
I'm looking at our ad spend against, again, our overall ROAS, percentage of ad spend against cash in, uh, percentage of ad spend against sales orders, percentage of ad spend against what we invoice on a daily, monthly basis. And I'm looking at those numbers daily. I've stopped looking at overall traffic as much as I used to in terms of calls and emails. Like I feel like I've gotten to a point where I feel like I can start to feel comfortable that the traffic is steady and I'll be told by the sales team if it falls off. But, you know, I think there are certain things where over the years I've been able to wean myself off of like, I have to look at this metric every hour. Google Analytics is not one of those. I constantly want to see how many people are on our site. Yeah, I think those are really important. Something I'm looking at. We've looked at, started to look at CVR a lot more and how, as we're AB uh, split testing some new uh, PDP designs. But yeah, at a top level, like I said, I think those like the cash out, ad spend out against like those metrics I mentioned are really what I'm looking at on a daily basis. For sure. That's super insightful. Thanks for breaking that down. So I want to ask you, you know, you're a CMO of a eight figure business looking like kind of backwards from when you started till now, what would you recommend for other e-commerce brands out there that are looking to scale in terms of the hiring piece? So, you know, building that team out, what do you think are the most critical aspects that a lot of e-commerce teams should be maybe looking for on the marketing side when hiring? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's probably cliche, but I mean, I think it's less about position and more about people. So I mean, like if I find good people, it's like find position to put good people in. And then if it's not, if you have good people and the position's not working and you recognize there are value to the company, then figure out how to make it work in another position. So currently, like we have a social media position that is open. Um, The person who is in the position, you know, it just wasn't working on the social media side, but she is like one of the most talented writers I've ever worked with. And so we're moving her into a more copywriting content marketing position. And that's great. And I mean, she's happy because I mean, that's her like she has more satisfaction out of doing something that she is excellent at. And it allows us to have value in that position. Now we have an opportunity to grow in the social media position. But I mean, I think um, one thing I found is I don't know how in the weeds we want to get, but I mean, one thing I have found is the value add of bringing on a full-time e-commerce director who is able to do a lot of front-end work. Um, So being on a Magento platform, you know, we're obviously Magento store operators are much more beholden to their SIs than I think others. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think Magento offers a ton. And, and I'm happy being on Magento and it's not a Magento thing, It's but it's just the way it is. So, and we started our e-commerce director over the summer, having someone who is can manage e-com, but also can kind of do some hot fixes on the fly on the front end has just become incredibly valuable to us. And it's something I wish we had done years ago. I mean, other positions... I mean, we're pretty lean for a company our size, I'll be honest. Like we outsource our digital media buy, like our digital agency. We obviously outsource an overwhelming majority of our dev. We outsource PR. Internally, we have e-commerce. We have a lot of back-end content people who are working in product and uploading product and tweaking product. And then we have a graphic design director. We have a photo director. And then we have, you know, one junior level graphic designer. And then that's really the team. So, I mean, I think... You can achieve a lot with a small team if you have the right people. But I mean, I do think to your question, there's a, there does come a tipping point where you have to scale your hire with the business. And um, I mean, I think one position we're looking at is someone who's not just managing chat, but is more like a 
direct message sales rep of sorts, like someone who's managing chat, but also all kind of incoming DM via Instagram or Facebook or whatever the next platform is. And just looking at that as more of like a sales representative sort of position. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot. We're always hiring. I mean, if we're not hiring, we're considering hiring, you know, and what position we need next. But at the same time, like we are bootstrapped and we, you know, cash is always sort of something that we have to consider against new hires. So uh, yeah. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks for diving into that over there. So the last question I kind of want to jump into and talk about super quick is, your tech stack that you have. I know on the Twitter thread that was there, you mentioned a few different tools you're using. Any that you want to call out specifically in terms of ones that you feel are really pushing the needle for the business and that you'd recommend to other e-commerce brands out there? Yeah. I mean, if anyone follows me on Twitter, <laughs> I'm not bashful about shouting out the partners I like working with. I mean, Nosto runs our onsite personalization. We run A-B testing of a lot of front-end design with Nosto. We do a lot of segmentation, audience building, and then personalization based off of that with Nosto. And then Nosto offers a lot of analytics that are just kind of like an add-on that I always joke with them. I don't think they do a great job of promoting the fact they offer like a decent analytics suite that I really like to look at. And they have a lot of like real-time cart value that I can look at and how many people are active in carts and that sort of thing. I'm a big fan of Nosto. We added Bolt as our one-click checkout partner in August, September. And that's been great. It's been a big win for us. I uh, have definitely seen lift in, in conversion rate and just an overall efficiency and ease of use for both the front-end customer in terms of checkout, but then also in terms of connecting the checkout process to our, all of our backend systems. And it's kind of like, not only is it a one-click checkout for front-end, but also one-click refunds and cancellations or whatever on the backend for us instead of having to do that in three places. So that's been uh, an efficiency value add for us. And so, yeah, Bolt has been really good. And I think what they're building is great and they're constantly iterating on their product. I really like working with Klevu. Klevu is what we use for our on-site search. They do do a lot of personalization too and and weighing of the product based on that. I don't think we've dove into that piece of it as much as we can, but I mean, just in terms of like search working and you actually being able to find what you're looking for and then the ability to customize the aesthetic of it. Like I think Klevu's doing a really good job there and really enjoyed having them on the site for the past couple of years. And one thing I forgot to mention, we're also using Nosto for our PLP curation, securing the PLPs based on personalization and based on some weighted metrics that we're putting into the back end. And Nosto, you're able to do that based on a lot of different metrics, including like margins, if you want, like pushing high margins to the top and all that sort of stuff. But uh, that's been really cool. So yeah, I'd say those three are really, I'm, I'm big fans of and look forward to what they're building out. Very cool. All right. So as we're coming to the end over here of the podcast, Ian, it's been awesome having you on here to talk about your marketing, your tech stack, and everything else in between. So before we wrap up over here, I want to ask you, give you a little bit of opportunity as well, you know, what's next for Industry West? And where can people who are listening, find more about Industry West, connect with your brand, and maybe even connect with you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. So, I mean, what's next for Industry West? I don't know. I mean, I think we're still like, as we're doing really well, and I'm really excited about the work we've done. You know, I've been 
blessed enough to know this company since its inception. I was friends with the founders before they created the company and came on about halfway through the company's life. So um, it's been great seeing the growth, particularly in e-commerce. It's been amazing. I mean, I just can't even with like the growth we've seen. And I think, but even with all that, I mean, I think if you walked around even like in New York City or major metro area and asked anyone, oh, do you know what Industry West is? Like they don't. So I mean, I think like sky's really the limit. I mean, I think there's so much market share out there, obviously for us. And I think furniture in terms of e-commerce, it's still a relatively young vertical. And I think it's something that that has been, you know, uh, seen growth because of COVID. And I think there's just so much opportunity out there. So, I mean, I think e-commerce and our growth in e-commerce is still is going to be exponential. And, and I'm looking forward to that and our investment in that. I mean, I think we're going to try to do more more collaborations with designers and more white label stuff with different designers and more like kind of exclusive drops. And we have a few in the works that I'm really excited about that I can't talk about quite yet. And then uh, we do have the shop in Soho. And I think ultimately, like, I do think that will will extend that potentially out to California in the next couple of years. And then, you know, maybe Austin or somewhere after. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's what's coming up for us. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, find us. Industry West is at industrywest.com. Uh, we have a sister brand, like I said, that sells like these amazing home decor and accessory items in favor of.com. And then I am most active on Twitter <laughs> and I am uh, at IR Leslie, I-R-L-E-S-L-I-E on Twitter. Yeah, that's it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great getting a chance to really dive into Industry West marketing strategy. I'm sure our audience out there appreciated it as well. And if you did, feel free to drop us a quick rating and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you next time on the DTC pod. Thank you.